Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean it. The movement. Ho, ho, ho. Episode 23. Today on the Movement of Color podcast, we talk about the moribund nature of America's protest culture. We have an activist profile of Marky from the Black Rose Federation, and the holidays suck, so maybe we should all celebrate Kwanzaa. My name is Brandon Payton Curio, and I think we should get started now. Byron. Brandon. How are you doing today? Uh, it's, it's very nice. It's finally fall here in SoCal. Uh, it took us a few months, but it's, it's here. Fall has come to Southern California. That sounds beautiful. Um, but unfortunately, we're not going to talk about anything really beautiful today, are we? No, if anything, we're, 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 we're talking about the death of a very beautiful thing. And what is that death? The death of protests in, in the United States. Mm. Yeah, it has seen a little bit of a transformation in the last couple years. Um, where do you think, where are we at now with protests? How free are we to protest? Um, well, like, ever, for like a long time, like, there's been an increasing difficulty in protesting, but also an, uh, an increasing kind of just capitulation of protesters to, like, the state and to capital. Um, it's just what – there's been less protests, but also the protests that have been happening have been, like, less radical, less willing to kind of push boundaries, less willing to, like, you know, bend a few laws every once in a while. Um, and we're only kind of very recently seeing kind of a, a revival of really confrontational protests. And by confrontational, you're meaning some of the tactics, right? Yeah, of like actually like going up, I like, you know, being at the being at the place of of the thing that you are protesting, rather than like like blocks away, or like actually like um, going onto government property to protest, or actually going up to politicians and like you know throwing out their food in front of their face and ruining their lunch or dinner or whatever. You know, so stuff like that, actually going and you know, confronting uh, state and capital rather than just like politely asking. Yeah. And it seems like the media kind of reinforces like, oh, you're supposed to politely ask and you're supposed to protest in this little box. Anything outside of that is uncouth. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is beneath us. It's like, well, it's beneath you, you rich fucks, but this is all we got left. <laughs> so – before we get deeper into this this discussion, I think it's important for people to kind of understand why we protest and why protesting is um, in the Constitution as a right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes to the very founding of this nation. It was ultimately, you know, it, it was a protest, you know, a protest of 
you know, very wealthy land owning, slave owning elites here in here in the colonies against like the more traditional, like aristocratic and kind of almost like like, like old old world bourgeoisie um, against new world bourgeoisie. But it was still a protest. There was still like ultimately kind of popular sentiment um, that was far more radical than when actually what then we actually ended up. But it was it was kind of inherent in our, the founding of this country. I mean, just look at the Boston Tea Party. Where a bunch of people kind of very, you know, in a not cool way, disguise themselves as indigenous people, um, and threw like private property into the into the uh, into Boston Harbor, um, or went around um, tarring and feathering and then murdering um, like British officials. You know, like <laughs> protest was was kind of inherent in the founding of the nation. That's why they ultimately kind of kept that stuff around because um, the founding fathers kind of realized that if they banned it, like. They would kind of they would look very hypocritical, like more more than what the, what they even they would allow. Yeah, and they can look very hypocritical depending on your lens or your position in that society. Byron, how did we get to this point where a country that was founded on the idea of protesting the government is now kind of clamping down? That same government is clamping down on this protest. Well, it's it's kind of a it's it's, it's very much a cause of a of kind of a very transactional shift um, where, um, especially it, from my research, it kind of I've seen it as like okay, this happened. Like I could see the shift from the kind of confrontational protest to this very legalistic, um, very liberal form of protest, um, which I kind of point to the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle. It was like the last hurrah of the kind of confrontational, like we're going to go to the thing we are protesting and like basically try to shut it down. And, you know, they did ultimately. Um, that was the last time. After that, like these kind of two ways of going diverged and you ended up getting like, you know, anarchist black bloc, kind of more radical thing. But it was very small. It's very only happened every once in a blue moon. And then the kind of liberal very legalistic, you know, they work with the police rather than against them, you know, they don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers, kind of liberal protests went the other way, and and, if, and usually if you go to a protest, that's the one you see. Um, you know, they go far away from the thing they're protesting because they don't want to upset anybody, um, they don't block traffic because, oh, we don't want to you know, harm anyone's day, we don't want to get in the way of anything. Um, even though that's the whole fucking point of protesting is to kind of cause disturbance to force people to pay attention to you and and your grievances, mm-hmm. um, and this is the, and that's kind of like just the way things have been for a very long time. Um, only until kind of recently have things really begun to shift um, back in the other direction. That's interesting because for a long time, and I'm not gonna say for a long time, but I had this kind of thought process by the way that we do protests with in the system i feel like wow that is really counterintuitive it's not going to work like it doesn't do anything you know and even some of the really staged um protests where we're gonna lock ourselves into this representative's office a lot of time the representative is not in the fucking office yeah, they, the the person isn't there locked with them. It's like, it's like, oh shit, our office, our our 
like the the two fucking interns who we hire for no money um, can't get in and do the work while like most representatives don't go anywhere near their offices really they're out doing other shit <laughs> yeah they're out raising money from rich fucks yeah they're out do they're out doing fundraiser dinners and like going to bars meeting with fucking lobbyists or they're out like or, you know, or like they're out somewhere else entirely different from like their home constituency or even DC. Like they're out doing something else. Completely. Yeah, giving some speech at some like think tank dinner or whatever. They do bougie shit, basically. Yeah. And, you know, so the media doesn't cover it. Like I remember where there was protests or even just demonstrations. Where in 2016, I don't know how it was in California, but in Chicago, it was the biggest fucking May Day in maybe 50, 60 years. There were at least 30,000 leftists descending into downtown Chicago. And not on one station was it ever covered. Granted, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a protest, but... You would think 30,000 people in fucking downtown Chicago. I mean, but yeah, I mean, because it's it is in the interest of the media, which compared to before, which, you know, in the old days, it was like, you know, your local TV station, which was usually owned by a local business person or, or local conglomerate. But now, um, especially with the media, like it's like it's basically owned by like four companies now. Like it used to be five companies, but then Disney bought the other, bought one of them, uh, like basically bought Fox. Um, and now all media is owned, is basically controlled. Uh, all media in the U.S. is controlled by five or now four, uh, like corporate, like corporate conglomerates, um, and they have a vested interest in not really giving credence to any legitimate leftist like gre- uh, grievances. Like it is because they know like. If they do, there's actual genuine chance that they might like – much like Trump and the, and the far right might actually start getting some traction and like some support because they're finally visible um, to not just everyone who's like there on the ground. Yeah, that's frustrating. So we talked about the failures of this kind of liberal approach to protesting and obviously media suppression of that protest as well. What are some of the ways that the state operates to suppress protest? Um, well, probably the biggest one, especially after 9-11, which is kind of like a big thing, um, was like the creation of free speech zones, um, which is like this kind of like workaround where the Constitution says like, oh, yeah, there's like free speech, but there's limits to it. Um, and ultimately actually went uh, actually went to the courts and it was actually like, oh, no, yeah, you can limit where you can do free speech. Um, you can't do it on private property. That's legal unless you have express like unless you like have the support of the the owner of that private property. Um, so that's like a fuck ton of like places. Yeah. Uh, most places are private property. Um, then there's uh, like when it comes to government institution like government property, um, they can also limit places. So like no military place. So you can't protest in front of a military base unless like this one like square inch of like land where like okay you can protest but it's only in this little tiny square of land that's like super far away from the road and like no one can see you and no one cares mm-hmm. um so that's one way of doing it, by limiting where you can protest next is the heavy securitization of 
of protests themselves. Um, so this is like the mil- the the government, um, usually state, uh, usually like the the states, county, and local, less the federal one. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about DC. Um, they very they just have a massive police presence. Like police forces have expanded exponentially. Um, like ever since um, the World Trade Organization protests, where they kind of realized, oh, we don't really have enough police to do this. Um, they just kept hiring more and more police. Um, and now, like, you have instances where the police outnumber the protesters by, like, a fuck ton. Um, and that causes these real issues of, like, oh, and, and on top of that, the police, uh, through police unions, can do more and more and more um, and not get, you know, have to worry about getting charged with like police brutality or murder or assault or anything or like, you know, anything like that. Um, because the definition of like what is allowed, um, or like police immunity, um, keeps getting, keeps getting expanded all the fucking time. So that's another way of like, of actively stopping and prevent, like, like reducing the, the protest itself. Um, next is on the side of the liberals, like where actual protesters, um, take this very legalistic, um, kind of very incredibly non-confrontational form of protesting where, you know, they they will never ever consider – like they will have a set schedule. They will do this, 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 and then, you know, far away from the place they're going to protest and then they go home and everyone – that, that's basically it. Does, that's all ever happens. There's no – you know, it, there's no moment when like there's never going to be a protest at the – White House with tr- with Trump like basically marrying Nixon, thinking like they're gonna store like this is a storming of the Winter Palace moment where like they might come in and murder me like right like right, murder me in front of everyone's faces in the in the in the White House. Um, that's never gonna happen. That is not in anybody's heads at all. They're they're not there because they're like they're not there because of like any real hard anger and want for justice. Um, like there is some, but it's not enough to actually like you know really to actually make uh the people you're protesting genuinely worry about their lives which is like usually like when you look at history is usually the way you actually get concessions out of the state and capital it's like when you actually threaten either themselves or their property um so that's never there, there's never going to be a storming and order palace moment um and that's kind of like the three ways that protesters guys kind of just died um in the u.s Bummer. It, it really is. All right. So, even though protest and protest culture has become corporatized, super bland, and somewhat ineffective, there has been an emergence of some new tactics, some new practices revolving around protests that are kind of interesting and maybe be able to get some shit done. Can you um, enlighten us on that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there, I mean, like we, like, like I've said it before, there's kind of been a, a new, rev, a kind of a renaissance of protest culture, um, and kind of a because because people have become increasingly radicalized, especially after Trump, um, and like they kind of see like, oh, these old tact, these old liberal tact, like tactics of protest just aren't working anymore. We need something else. Um, and kind of like the biggest one you, you probably – there's two of the biggest ones you've probably seen um, in the media because it's got so much attention has been occupations and directly confronting uh, like politicians like themselves, like in a private setting. Um, so the first one's occupation. This is where you are – and kind of what started with 
um, Occupy Wall Street, where it's like, okay, we're going to stay here. Like, we're basically going to occupy this part. The original plan was to occupy Wall Street, but because of the hyper-securitization of Wall Street, um, of the area itself, like, they, they just settled on Zuccotti Park. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't actually march into Wash- in, into Wall Street. Um, so they just decided to occupy Sakai Park, and it was like this whole big thing, and it was this very direct democratic thing. And everyone who who I've talked about really talked about like how invigorating direct democracy was, about claiming space away from the state capital, um, like forming an alternative, that kind of stuff. But it was really there to mainly, mainly to get media attention. I mean, the fact that like a major park next, right next to one of the major financial centers of the world, was basically off limits to the forces of capital. Um, the state was kind of like a big fucking deal. Um, but of course, occupations can't last forever, um, whether it's Occupy ICE or Occupy Wall Street um, or anything else. Like eventually, especially here in the U.S., this, you know, the state ultimately rears its head um, and kind of deals with it. Um, so it's only like a temporary attention-grabbing thing. Mm-hmm. The secondly, the, the second big thing that's kind of really getting uh, politicians and beltway pundits and all that like really in a – uh, in, in a tuffle, um, has been directly confronting politicians. Um, where you know, for example, I think it was either Mitch McConnell, or Lindsey Graham, uh, were having a dinner, um, like a you know a dinner in this private restaurant. It's like whatever they're just doing it. It's like any other any other night in DC. And then a bunch of protesters found out they were there, like that they were at that place, um, and just went up to them and just like started screaming at them, like protesting them directly to their face. Um, basically ruined their night. I mean, I think one person like threw uh, the guy's food, like, oh, like, and just like flew it onto the floor. Nice. Um, essentially ruined this person's day and like making it impossible for this person like to live their life. Um, and like now, and that kind of like led to all these like op-ed pieces from politicians and beltway shitheads saying like, oh, this is the loss of decorum. This is why Trump won, or. Like there's no respect for po- for process anymore. Like there's no there's no honor in it anymore. Like stuff like that. You know, just shit that would just that if you actually really analyze would just mean like, are like we don't have a protected position in society anymore. We actually have to deal with our constituents. We have to actually deal with popular resentment. Like uh boo 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 hoo. Um, but it but this really like gets into something very deep in the liberal psyche of why. Why liberals don't like this tactic? It's mainly because, like, American liberalism is very much based on John Locke, um, rather than like Rousseau in France or Hobbes in authoritarian countries. Um, Where Locke kind of saw like representatives as this kind of almost, especially through Alexander Hamilton, which lives also love now, I guess. Totally. um, As as this kind of almost like meritocratic aristocracy. That we choose based on merit and whether or not they're successful or not, and these are, you know, enlightened, uh, me- you know, men predominantly uh, who know better than us and will run the country for us, and we're just kind of and like the actual everyday citizen is kind of just o- only really meant to kind of vote every few years to kind of kind of sort kind of course correct to the country um, as necessary, um, but at the end of the day, they're kind of these almost like semi-godlike figures that are kind of supposed to be immune from like, you know, ironically enough, immune from politics. Um, they don't have to deal with protests. They don't, they, they, they shouldn't have to deal with all these other on, on people having to deal on like the constituency coming after them. Um, they're, 
they're meant to rule us, not be not 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 to rule like with us, you know. Yeah. Um, and this and and by directly confronting these politicians, um, you are essentially breaking down that kind of aristocratic way of thinking of, of this aristocratic veneer um, on these politicians. And I think it is kind of starting to work where politicians are, are are realizing that like, oh shit, yeah, popular resentment is a thing that exists. Popular opinion is real, like political force. Um, and I'm not protected behind my, you know, fucking like gated community anymore. Um, I am at the whim of the great beast, um, as Hamilton would call would call the people. Um, and now, and like it's working. Like we uh, that, ha- like for example, when Occupy ICE, ICE was happening, there was also um, like people were going after high level ICE officials, and it, there was like an actual change in policy. Like things were like they kind of clamped down things a little bit. Um, I think going forward, this is kind of one of the main tactics that's, that's going to happen. Um, how long this will last before, like, you know, pri- you know, before these DC restaurants start like getting, like, start hiring Eric Prince to like def- to like put armed guards at the door? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but you know, it, it, it's good to see politicians, like, you know, sweating because they might, you know, because of the back of their mind, they they're kind of reminded that the Greek beast is always there, and that if if things go from bad to worse. Uh, you might be like Nixon and think you might die. <laughs> yes, you can be eaten and swallowed alive. <laughs> so on that note, which is a high note, I'm going to say thank you. That was an awesome discussion. Thank you. Well, thank thank you to the protesters who are going out and doing this shit. Uh, it, especially DC. DC protesters. Mm, you guys, y- y- y'all are good. Y'all some good fucks. Yeah, they take it to the next level. They don't fuck around. Okay. Um, Well, my name is Marky. I am 26 years old. Born and raised in Los Angeles, and I go by Luther. Well, when I first started organizing on my campus at community college, I kind of just gathered with a bunch of group of friends. And through chartering as a club, we learned the biases and, I guess, uh, kind of clubhouse mentality of the ASU. Because we, we were kind of like, you know, they would rip down our posters, they would kind of bar us from having events or whatever. And so I learned that that's kind of like on a micro scale what goes on in the grand scheme of things, in which... You know, under the Obama administration, there were like two million deportations. There was a rise of, you know, drone warfare, and so by learning that, you know, things are still messed up under a Democratic president, and then having Trump come into power, it's kind of a lack of faith in the two-party system, even when there's there's a presentation of like third-party like alternatives, who really are just kind of like co-opting. The idea of 
Well, I'm trying to organize at my school to kind of bridge the gap between community colleges and the Cal State universities through as California student, California Autonomous Student Movement, which is CASM. And so a lot of the things that you know students tend to forget about is that they kind of neglect the outside world and kind of just focus on what's happening on campus. When in reality, a lot of students are working themselves and struggling for either paying tuition, for food, for finding housing, or finding money for books or whatever. And so I'm kind of really excited because it's gaining momentum, you know, just as the semester has started. And a lot of, you know, students kind of actually reached out to me in order to create a chapter at the school I go to. that I would say are more successful from having you know, a specific plan of action. And so the other thing would be the Police Popular Assembly, which is an assembly of local community members who voice their you know, concerns and opinions about the issues facing their communities, such as immigration like ICE, and then you know enacting uh, sanctuary schools. So... Right now, we have two initiatives happening. One is kind of like, you know, what to do in a situation if ICE comes to the school, and will teachers and students be prepared and what they could do instead of relying on the police and authorities. And then the other point would be uh, the rapid response network, in which it's a 24-7 hotline where community members in King County or, or LA can call the number if they see ICE. And... The hopes are to, you know, actively block, uh, you know, an ICE ban or whatever it may be. The challenges mainly are just and making sure that there's members that, or, you know, new members show up to the meetings and just kind of follow through. But, I mean, other than that, I mean, right now they're kind of holding meetings for different schools in order for them to, you know, follow through on sanctuary school. Because right now sanctuary school is just like something that's written down. It's not really anything that people are really prepared for, but the CCA is kind of taking that initiative empower the local community members to know what to do for themselves, you know, rather, like I said, rather than relying on, like, cops or something. Okay, so this is my last question for you. Because you're involved in a lot of different things, and these are big things. But out of all of your activism, what um, makes it easier for you to sleep at night? Well, that's a tough question because half of me part of feels like, oh, okay, like I'm I'm doing something, like I'm a part of different things that are 
that address the needs of different communities, whether it's through KP or CASM. But half of me doesn't really sleep at night because it's like I want to do all these things and I want to figure out like how can we effectively, you know, change things because I know that, you know, these things take, take time, but there's always something that needs to be addressed or fixed and, you know, that kind of, I guess that's what kind of keeps me going, but kind of makes me like a little bit bummed out too, is that like I can't address every issue. Damn, Byron. Yeah, the, the holidays are coming. Get, get, get ready, folks. <laughs> yes, the onslaught of Merry Christmas, Season's Greetings, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and whatever the hell people say that is, Muslims do around this time. Yeah, it's uh, to, to all the tallest service workers and all the cashiers, uh, people who stock shelves, uh, we salute you. Uh, you are braver than troops. Um, you, you're the you're the ones who really deserve that purple medal. Exactly, exactly. All the bullshit you have to go through um, with cranky brunches and holiday cookies and hearing the same four songs on the store AP on the store uh, sound system over and over and over again. Yeah. And you know what? I never had a white Christmas, nor do I want one. And I grew up in Wisconsin. <laughs> but why yeah. why does why does why does Christmas and holidays why does it suck? Why do I feel so bad during this time of year? Yeah, that's that's a weird phenomenon. Uh I mean some say it's seasonal depression, maybe there's some point to it, but I think there's a deeper kind of almost social level of what the fuck the holidays have become rather than like what they kind of originally were meant to be. Um, so, you know, quick little, you know, you know, uh, two minute history of, of, of Christmas started as a, I think it was a German, like Germanic pagan holiday. Um, that was basically, it was, it was your average winter solstice festival. Hey, we're going to give these offerings to this like tree God, like there's a winter God. Uh, so we don't all die during winter and we have good harvest later. Uh, thanks for not killing us. Uh, we lived. Um, so, you know, it was, it was very normal and like whatever. Um, and then the Christians came and have to ruin everything as they do. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and, and they kind of just appropriated, uh, like all the culture and then, made you know about jesus birthday uh even though it was probably even though like everyone who like looks at the weather conditions was like oh it's probably in june uh it doesn't matter um historical accuracy was never really the strong suit uh, as the strong suit of the catholic church Mm um and then it kind of was its own thing. It was, it was basically a holy day. It was like basically one of the many days off people had in the medieval world. Um, yeah, people had a lot of free days off. There's like a billion state sink states and stuff, and it was just one of them. Uh, but then it, you know, capitalism came into existence and saw this 
and then it people finally saw this like oh shit there's this holiday that somewhat involves gift giving but it's more about family and community and you know all this other stuff how about we get rid of all that shit and we just kind of like you know make it more about the presence <laughs> you know and, and with all the family stuff and being all secondary and shit um you know wrapping around the presence uh is is more presence um if you will so uh, capitalism got its hand on it, and ever since, uh, we've had things like Black Friday, um, which is this hell day where um, they lower the prices to basically what the price would be like a month later anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, they got all, they get all these like really cheaply made TVs that like that have been known to break like a few months after because they're specifically made for Black Friday um, to be cheap and shitty and not work all that all that much. Um, and then, you know, people trample each other over, you know, small deals that, like, if they just waited a few day, a few months would be there anyway. Or they can just get online cheaper. Hmm. Um, and it just – and then, you know, people in the service industry have to suffer for it. Um, you know, they miss Thanksgiving with their families. Um, another holiday that is, has its own history. Um, but, you know, it, and it's kind of led to this – almost what I could say, like this kind of contradiction, like almost like, almost like, you know, Hegelian contradiction of, you know, Christmas, which is supposed to be about family and community and being there for each other. And, you know, you know, the, the humanity inherent in everybody and, you know, helping, you know, and, and helping each other and mutual aid and all this other stuff. And then the actual reality of, it's about buying stuff. It's about, Buying things to show your love for others, um, you know, all this buying all this shit to show how much you love Christmas. Um, if, if you've ever been to like a middle class suburb, you you can see how bad it can get in terms of showing how much you love Christmas. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's like this inherent contradiction of these two ideas that people hold at the same time that kind of just riles your brain, and you kind of. And, like, a lot of people are kind of, like, subconsciously acknowledge the fact that, like, oh, this is all kind of bullshit. And I never, like, even though, like, we live on, even though we live in one of the loneliest times in recorded history where people, like, they've done studies where people have been shown they've, they've never, in terms of loneliness, loneliness is on the rise. Um, yet we have this holiday about family and stuff where you actually just buy shit. And it's, it, it, it's not good for you folks. It, it's not good. Not good. And then the propaganda machine of all these corporations. Like one of the most disgusting one that I've seen this year was a GMC truck commercial, where obviously the Swank Mansion, like modernist mansion, and you know obviously white people live there. And the guy's like, "Baby, I got you a gift," and she's like, "Ooh, what you got?" And they go out into the driveway, and he has bought not one GM truck, but two GM trucks. Damn. Yeah, this dude's balling out the GM trucks. And she runs to the black one, and she's like, oh, thank you. He's like, well, actually, no, thank you. This is great. And she's like, well, I guess I can just settle for the red one. And I'm like, what planet are we living on? So, like, who are these mythical, like, middle-class people that exist? Who the fuck are they? I've never seen them before. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can drop 60 Gs on 
fucking GM a new car. Yeah. Who the fuck buys new cars? Exactly. And who fuck buys them for Christmas at least too, you know? Somebody, but it's not me. Not you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, yeah, like, so, like, so, like, I, I live a few, like, a few miles from Disneyland, and every night, um, they have, like, the, the fireworks, and, like, I can hear them and see them if I'm in the right, like, place of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look through the right window, I can see them. Um, and that's kind of, like, a giant fuck you, like, kind of a, kind of a giant social fuck you to, like, to us dirty pores in Santa Ana, um, who will not, who cannot afford to go there, let alone get, like, a season pass or any of that shit. I, f- I feel the exact same way when I see those commercials, um, which is why I barely watch TV anymore um, during during the holidays. It's, I, I can't, I just can't. It's like, oh, here's a bunch of shit that we're selling that you will never be able to buy, and you just and like you'll probably like not just now, but in the future, you will never probably be able to buy. Um, so fuck you. Um, you're not our target audience. You're, our target audience is that small, small percentage of you know upper middle class people that still exist in this country. Because let's be honest, the rich people they're going for Lambos. <laughs> They're not going for the for a four door sedan. And and but the thing is, their propaganda is still effective because it's like, all right, one day I'm going to work hard and I'll be able to buy that for my wife because and she'll love me more. When really she should probably just love your ass for who you are. But um, and I'm not just saying that from a guy who doesn't want to buy anybody shit for Christmas, but I am that guy. Well, <laughs> But it's 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 such a distraction from our own humanity, making those personal connections, you know, and encouraging us to aspire to this bullshit commercialism. Yeah, I mean, it, it instead of giving gifts out of the sake of your own heart, like small little personal gifts that matter, like that has some actual meaning, like it just becomes a transaction like of here's this big ass thing I just bought you uh, because I really want to show my love to you. Um, and of course, you know, the car dealers, the fucking, like all the capitalists, all the capitalists are just, oh, just so happen to be all the middlemen who you buy the stuff from. (laughs) Um, you know, just spending time with the people you love is not enough. And, uh, oh, small, small little tidbit, uh, buying a car, uh, for your significant other is not going to fix your marriage. (laughs) Uh, sorry, but you know, I, I, I feel like that should be common knowledge. Yeah. and And the thing is. The same adequate sex you would have gotten before you bought the car is the same adequate sex you would probably have gotten after you had the car. So even sex is not a motivator for this. Yeah, cars are not magical things that will just fix things, you know? They're just things you go inside and they carry you around the world. It's really weird. They used to be just tools and utilitarian. I know they moved to status pieces, but that does not mean it's going to fix your relationship. Sorry, folks. And if you were bummed out by that, you probably weren't a fan of this show anyway. But, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I mean, like, but, but that really is the kind of the, the big bummer of Christmas is we have it's, it's I, I really I, it feels like I'm harping on it. But that's really the, the point I want to make across in this segment is we live in a lonely world and Christmas and this whole Christmas thing. Um, is I, it doesn't actually make you feel better because deep down you know it's about buying shit and not actually making connections. So it just aggravates the loneliness. 
uh, especially if you're poor and you can't really afford to go to your parents or with like family and stuff. Um, like for for me, like this this Christmas, I'm not uh, normally like my family goes to Mexico um, to spend time with my now deceased grandmother's like home. This is that like all family gathers to. Um, they still do it in like memory of my grandma, but I can't go uh, because I do my family's finances, and I know we're broke. Uh, we cannot afford like it, it's like like there's that there's that like Catholic mom guilt um, of like uh, you're in a, like grumble grumble grumble. You're not going, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm you know I pay I, I I basically have access to all your bank accounts. I know how much money we have. I'm, not, I'm volunteering to stay so we can keep a roof over our heads. Um, it sucks. That's the actual reality that you know us, you know, working class, you know, poor people have to deal with is making these huge sacrifices for family during a time when you should be with your fucking family. Mm-hmm. Like that's the actual reality. That's the capitalist reality that we live in. Not this fucking everyone wearing ugly sweaters, you know, hanging around a fucking Christmas tree. You know, passing all these like fuck ton of presents that you just somehow have, you know, like maybe there's a small percentage of the population that still fucking lives like that, but the vast majority of us, hell no, nah, not really, not at all. And for whatever reason, they still drink Miller Lite at these big ass, you know, fancy ugly sweater, you know, yeah, and parties. yeah, and then they and then they fucking feed Coca Cola to fucking polar bears, which is gonna kill them. <laughs> yeah. Don't feed Coca Cola to little. Polar bear cubs. Holy shit! Why? Why do you think this is okay, Coca Cola? Why do you think this is okay? Yeah, totally. Oh, that's disgusting. No, I, I still, I still remember that. Um, that reminds me of a, a Super Bowl commercial with this one for like I think it was Hanheiser Bush, mm-hmm. where there was this one guy very sensually grooming a horse, like a Clydesdale. Oh, yeah. And it looked like he was going to fuck the horse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, and and that's just kind of, that's a whole tangent on, like, who thought this was a good idea in the marketing department. Uh, But, you know, yeah, Christmas is also home of really stupid fucking ads. (laughs) Lots of stupid fucking ads. But they probably got the horse fucker lobby behind them, you know, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. but you know what? Instead of all right, instead of Christmas and all those kind of bullshit holidays, and let's be honest, Hanukkah—they morphed Hanukkah into a Jewish Christmas, so Jews didn't feel left out in the whole consumerism. I will say, I was like, "What the fuck is Kwanzaa?" And I was kind of really down on Kwanzaa too, and I was going to throw that into the mix um, as this consumerism bullshit. But actually, the more I learned about Kwanzaa, I'm like, wow, okay, you spend time with your family, you learn about cooperative economics on the third day of Kwanzaa. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. And community building and all this other stuff. So I suggest black, brown, Asian, whatever, hey, white people, celebrate Kwanzaa. Yeah. Do that instead. <laughs> Kwanzaa's new Christmas. Yeah. Pretty here, folks. Kwanzaa's a new Christmas, and it's like seven days, you know? It starts a day after bullshit Christmas, and it goes to the New Year. And then you can drink and get fucked up on New Year's. Hell yeah. That's the way to go, folks. That's it. <laughs> that's it. I feel like that's a good end. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, 
uh, fuck Christmas, uh, fuck uh, fake Hanukkah, like fake Christmasized Hanukkah. Yeah. Um, Kwanzaa's the way to go, folks. We're doing Kwanzaa this year. Um, And fuck season's greetings. Thank you. (laughs) All right, folks. Thank you for riding along with us on this very special Kwanzaa edition of the Movement of Color podcast. Again, my name is Brandon Payton Carrillo. I encourage you to follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color. And hey, support us at Patreon on patreon.com backslash movement of color podcast. All right. Yeah, great time. Look forward to hanging out with you guys in the near future. Adios. Color.